Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. It's Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a family faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us this morning. This text from Isaiah 42 If you're a person who has spent much time, any time really, around scripture uh, in your life, and you've done one of those, maybe read the Bible through in a year, plans or whatever, there's, there's a text. If you've come across it in your scripture reading, my guess is that you've made a note of it. And it's Isaiah 42, 3. The bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What, what language, what a picture of the character and the nature of God. What a confrontation that image of God is to any of us who might see him as a domineering, upset old man in the sky. What Isaiah is describing here with the word of the Lord is on the one hand, he's describing a servant. He says, the Lord says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And then what does he describe? He describes somebody who's going to rule with such power and such authority and such insight into the human condition that you realize he's describing a king. He's not just describing a servant, but he's describing a servant who has this un- paralleled authority it's the messiah the one with all of the authority of god and the power of a king and yet has this tenderness and loyalty of a servant before his master and we're given this look of the rule of jesus christ here in this passage glory days what are your glory days do you have them 
Can you picture them? Do you have an era in your life that you look back and you say, things were firing on all cylinders, or at least as close to I can recall? Do you know what those would be for you? Springsteen helps us, right? He talks about it. I think about this. A number of years ago, I was... um, living in Kansas City at the time, I was pastoring a church there. And most of my life as a pastor, my office has basically been a backpack. Uh, my workplace has been coffee shops, and I've, I've kind of moved around in coffee shops. I have an office back there, and it just feels like such an extravagance. Um, but most of the time, I just would work out of coffee shops. And I remember I was in a, in, a, in a coffee shop in Kansas City, and I was packing up my stuff, and I was getting ready to walk out the door. And from the table right next to me, I heard the words... Are you Russ Ramsey? And I turn around, and guys, you would not believe who I was looking at. I was looking at Ron Johnson Jr. No kidding. You don't know who he is. But you kind of do. If you've been at this church anyway, if this is your first time with us, welcome. I'm going to refer to a couple of stories that I've told in the past, uh, probably in the past six weeks, so they're a little current. Um, But if you've been in the room and you heard me talk about a youth group room that I used to sit in where there were finger marks in the ceiling because the youth pastor was telling the gospel and he got so worked up and excited that he went, woo, and he did that with his hand and he he cut his knuckles on the ceiling of the youth group room, that was Ron Johnson Jr.'s fingers that did that. If you've heard me tell stories about my good friend Joe, who died from cancer about 12 years ago, and the growing up that we had of coming to faith together in high school and being a part of this church and this youth group, Ron was our guy. He was our youth pastor. And there he is in Kansas City in town for a funeral, and I see him, and this flood of memories comes back upon me of just this era in my life, it's probably four years in total, give or take, of being in the presence of this guy weekly, being in the presence of these friends, being a high schooler and a college student at the same time and having all of this freedom and time and control over my schedule and I was spiritually coming alive for the first time and I was with friends and we were all just on this journey together and it was a magical thing and Ron was a constant in that. Ron was there in the room the day that I first knew I was a Christian. Part of my conversion story is is I I don't have a story to tell about um, knowing that I needed to receive Jesus as my Savior and asking him into my heart. What I do have is I have a moment where I was at a youth retreat, January 21st, 1989, around 7 p.m., Upland, Indiana, Taylor University's campus in the Wandering Wheels kitchen, standing just to the left of the fireplace, not to put too fine a point on it, (laughs) where we were singing songs and I remember lifting my head and realizing that I had become a Christian. It's the best way I can describe it to you. I'm not trying to be theologically clever. It, It was the experience that I had, that I knew that I had become a Christian, that I wasn't one and now I was one. And I knew that my life was changed in that moment. And Ron Johnson was across the room from me in that moment. He was a hero to us. He was somebody who pursued us with the love of Christ. I have all of these memories of him. There's this book that a guy named John Eldridge wrote a while back called The Journey of Desire. And he makes this statement. He says, we all have places in our past when when life, if only for a moment, seemed to be coming together in the way that we knew in our hearts 
it was always meant to be. I love that idea, right? The idea of having this moment where everything is just coming together. Glory days. And for me, those moments include that era of my life with Ron Johnson Jr., high school years with that youth group. And they, as I remember them, they seem to be filled with so much joy and so much brightness and so much freedom and so much ease. But I was also early on in my faith, I started journaling. And so I have this stack of journals none of you will ever see uh, from when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. I have a stack of journals. And in them are the thoughts and the prayers of a 15-year-old through a 20-year-old. And when I look back through them every once in a while, through a hand that's kind of like this, as I cringe, one of the things that I see is those days were filled with as much struggle and uncertainty and loneliness as I've ever felt at any other time in my life. And it reminds me that when it comes to our past glory days, our memories of them, uh, are selective, and sometimes they're even wrong. We think that the glory or the beauty that we remember was somehow attached to those days, to those relationships, and that as those things pass, that the glory passes too, never to return unless we can somehow get them back. And so, so often what we want to do is we want to go back to these days as we remember them and get those days back. But C.S. Lewis is helpful in his book, The Weight of Glory. He observes, and this is good news, friends, he, ob- he observes that this hunger for glory is not a hunger for a glory that has passed. It's a hunger for a glory that awaits It's a longing for a glory that we catch glimpses of, like light through the crack in a door, but isn't yet fully here. Here's how he says it. He writes this. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them, because it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far-off country that we have never visited. So what if the longing that you carry, that I carry, for things that we remember as glory days when everything seemed to be coming together, what if it's not really what you need? There's the intensity to it, and the intensity of the longing is something that makes it hard for us to see that it's not really what we need. What if our longing is right? It's right to to long for that glory more, but our expectation for how that longing is to be fulfilled, what if that's misguided? Because we can shape our lives around longings. We do this, right? Right? We all do. We shape our lives around things that we want. We chase after things that we don't need. We can be blind to the things that we do need. What do you need? Like if somebody were to say, take out a piece of paper and just write down one thing you need. What do you need? What would you write? After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel 
They had longing. They longed for things. They longed for something that they thought they needed. And they thought they needed it immediately. And, and they thought they needed it badly. And that was they needed a king. We need a king. We look around, everybody else has a king. We don't have a king. And the longing for a king wasn't a bad thing. People need to be led, right? But the expectation behind the longing that they had was one that when you read the Old Testament, you're like, oh, this led them to <laughs> so much misery chasing after this. So I want to talk about that journey as a way of talking about Christ who is the servant, the king who becomes the servant of all. Because this really is about longing. What do you want God to do for you? What is it that you need him to do? Because Israel's looking at God and saying, we, we want a king. We need a king. We have, there's, something, there's things we need somebody to do for us. And we need it in the form of a king. So let's go back to the book of Exodus, there's 40 years. The people of Israel have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and the Lord has finally led the people up across the King's Highway into what is now Western Jordan, to Mount Nebo and Moab, and from there they're going to enter the Promised Land. They're ready to go in. And they've been through a lot in those 40 years. Boy, they'd been through so much more before those 40 years started. They'd been enslaved in Egypt. They were building the Pharaoh's empire, and the Lord has brought them out, parted the Red Sea, took them into the wilderness. 40 years they'd been there, and they'd had Moses to lead them, and Moses led them. And their leader, Moses, he was God's man. And there was a stability and a security that he brought to them. I mean, God gave Moses his law. Moses went up a mountain, God wrote his law on a rock, on stone tablets. Moses came down carrying these things. Under Moses' leadership, the Israelites had been fed manna and quail from the hand of God in the desert. He just sent food down for them. Water from a rock, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Under Moses... God had given the people of Israel decisive victories over enemies that wanted to just wipe them out. Egypt, the Canaanites, the Amorites. And so now here they are at Mo, uh, Mount Nebo in Moab and they're looking across the Jordan River and they're about to enter the promised land. And what happens? Moses dies. Moses dies. Their leader and so the people are now going to enter the promised land as 12 tribes with no king. And in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord told Moses what kind of king they should seek. He should be one who honors the Lord, one who obeys the Lord. He should not, they should not seek a king who is after riches or harems or military power. But when the people eventually did clamor for a king, it was because they were afraid. What they were supposed to do is they were supposed to ask the Lord to give them a king who would lead them closer to him. But instead what they wanted is they wanted a king who would give them power, who would give them power over neighboring armies, these armies that they feared. They longed, what did they long for? Strength. The reason they longed for strength is because they knew themselves to be weak. 
but a king could conquer. And so the people prayed for a king as Andrew Peterson sings in his Behold the Lamb of God record, we want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be a king like this? And years after entering the promised land in 1 Samuel 8, this is homework, you need to go back and read 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8, the people demand that Samuel appoint a king to rule over them and the Lord tells Samuel the prophet, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Samuel, listen to them. Listen to them, but warn them. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And then 1 Samuel 8 and on, you get a description of what this king is going to do, and it is grim. Grim. And that king would be Saul. And Saul would do everything that the Lord said he was going to do, and the people of God suffered. And they suffered greatly. And they cried out to the Lord, deliver us from our own king. And so the Lord judges Saul and says, I'm removing my anointing from you. You are not gonna be king of the people of Israel and the people of Israel are gonna get a new king. Who do they get? Now we're talking. They get, class, David, right? They get David. Who's David? He's just the best king ever. That's all. He's the best king ever. He's the hero of Israel. He's Ron Johnson Jr. sitting at the table next to you at the coffee shop. He's the one where children would go out and play and they would take their wooden swords and one kid would say to another, I'll be David, you be Goliath. And the kid who just got put in the place of Goliath would be like, you always make me Goliath. I want to be, I want to be David this time. And they'd say, okay, fine, let's both be David and let's both be David slaying the 10,000 Philistines. And they'd be like, all right, game on. He'd walk through a room and the women would blush. And the men would feel twice as strong just being near him. And he would be a poet and a warrior and a man of prayer after God's own heart. He would be everything that they were hoping for in a king. And he would become the standard by which they would evaluate and judge every other king, just hoping that the next king to come along would just be like more David than David was. Camelot. Andrew Peterson again. When the people spoke of him, they'd say, he's a king on a throne full of power, with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been a king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength? The hearts of the people are his. Hero Israel, was ever there a king like this? But like Moses, David also died. And his sons didn't honor the Lord as he had, and the people were again oppressed by their enemies. And years would pass, and God handed them over to the Assyrians and what the Assyrians did to the people of Israel is about the worst thing you could possibly imagine happening to this particular group of people. Because when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, I'm gonna make you a nation that's gonna shine like the stars. You're gonna be so great. And this is the land where you're gonna live. 
But first you're going to spend 400 years in captivity. And off they went to Egypt and 400 years pass and they're Pharaoh's slaves. And God raises up Moses and says, you're going to lead my people out into the promised land, into this land of their inheritance. And finally, they're going to be in the place that I swore to their forefathers to give them. And they go through this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and God preserves them in spite of their disobedience and he leads them and he cares for them and he delivers them and he brings them into the promised land and they have it. And then the Assyrians come in and part of God's judgment on them is what, is, what, is, what happens? The Assyrians carry them out. Could you imagine a worse thing to happen to the people of Israel than to be extracted by a pagan nation because of the the Lord's judgment over them from the land that he promised to give them. And they cry out to their prophet, speak Isaiah, prophet of Judah. Can you tell of the one, the king who's going to come? Will he be a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Andrew Peterson again for the last time. Today's text describes that king, the king they're crying out for, where they're in this reckoning as a nation, the king who's going to come, the king that we've needed all along. And he's this. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you and I will give you, he's speaking of Christ, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, these former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This king that Israel wants, the king that they wanted to subdue and restrain warring nations, to fight their external battles for them is not that king at all. You have to ask the question, if what I really want in my king is to just subdue all the external forces that are coming at me from the outside to vanquish them, to conquer them, is that a king? It's kind of a general, an admiral. It's a military figure. What does a king do? A king rules. A king commands the loyalty and service of his people. To honor a king is to live serving at the pleasure of that king. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, we talked about this last week, upon what did he sit? A throne. A throne. When Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem, he was born a king. He was born the king of the people of God. And when Isaiah describes him, he calls him this servant of the Lord. What makes this king a servant? Verse one, his strength would not come from chariots and weapons, but it would come from the spirit of God himself. Verse four, he would rule by the holy and perfect law of God. Verse two and three, his manner would not be overbearing, but would be gentle. Verses six and seven, he would bring deliverance 
not from the temporal and fading nations, but from spiritual blindness and broken relationship with God. In verse 8, his glory would not come from gold and empires and armies, but his glory would come from God himself. And his rule would command devotion, and he would conquer. But what did the baby come to conquer? He did not come as the people were expecting. He did not come as one who would conquer and rule the nations. He did not come as one who would take them back to the glory days of King David and say, let's do Camelot again. Instead, his purpose was to restore you and restore me and to restore our brokenness and our broken relationship with God. What we need most is this kind of a king, a king who would conquer us, a king who would conquer and rule our hearts. I don't know what you're trying to hold together. I've got things I try to hold together. I don't know what you're trying to hold together. But maybe this is what you're asking God to do. Maybe this is how you're asking him to be your king, is just hold it all together. (laughs) Come on. It's so plain to me what you ought to be doing, right? Maybe his kindness is to show you how to let that go. To, to release what you're trying to control. Maybe what he's doing is he's beckoning you, trust me, trust me, over your own plans to preserve some semblance of what you might think or call glory days. And is that not kindness from him? We need to submit to his rule in our lives. It's a spiritual act of worship, Romans 12 tells us. So worship him. Worship the king, who by his life and his death has secured peace with God for you. And may his spirit continually conquer us so that your celebration of Christmas and mine might be marked by our worship of Jesus, the king before whom we kneel. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the ways that you show us in your word over and over and over again that we are a wayward lot and that you are a faithful and gentle God who cares for us. Father, we confess that we are people who often just want you to do things for us. There are things in life that we look at and we say, I need this preserved and I need this gone and, and God, my relationship with you is you doing those things for me and in exchange, um, I call myself uh, faithful to you. But Lord, I pray that you would break that in us. I pray that you would break the things in us that we're trying to hold on to the things that we're trying to preserve and that you would help us to remember and that we would remember with glad hearts that the glory that we really long for is not behind us, but it's ahead. And boy, is it ahead. It's perfect. It's something we catch a glimpse of here and there, but the fullness of it would overwhelm. 
Father, you, you, you promise that that is the destiny of the people who follow after you, is eternal glory in your presence. And so, Lord, give us a hunger for that and lead us on and release our grip on the things of this world that we hold to and look to for, for peace. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.